Welcome to Equinox, where we're striking the balance between the light and the dark. And we are turning eight this week, Rob. How about that? Oh, man. Eight already. Woohoo! I am Joseph Darnell, and I am joined by my great friend, as always, Dr. Robert Carter. Hey, Hello, everybody. Rob. Hello, everybody. I am thrilled. Spring feels really good. We got a nice crisp air every morning, and it warms up very smoothly. The heat waves and the humidity has not overwhelmed Georgia yet. And there's so much pollen, I feel like I have sandpaper in my eyes. <laughs> yeah, it, the, 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 there it is on my phone. Like if I go outside and I get into the sunlight, I can see the dust on my screen. And it's like my phone had been sitting out for a day overnight, but it's not. It's like the pollen is in my pocket. <laughs> it's getting everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. The yellow menace. So I'm <clears throat> going to clear our throats with a glass of water here at the, po- at the <clears throat> podcaster's table. Yeah, I've been really enjoying this uh, whole forced to work at home sort of thing. Because without all the interactions of all the other people in the office, which I also enjoy, I can work a lot more on specific topics without getting distracted by other projects. And this week has just been a, a, a wonderful sit out on my front porch with all the yellow pollen on my computer screen, listening to the birds. You start off in the morning with a sweater on and by afternoon you're in short sleeves. Yeah, same here. <laughs> and I've gotten so much done and have so much time to focus on really interesting ideas and projects, which I usually don't get to do. You know, that is one of the huge like silver linings. I'm thinking about several things that have happened over the last few weeks. And you're you're so right. Like I've, I've started rethinking about how I focus on all of my work because so much, so much of our work is chopped up by traveling and public speaking and the meetings in the office. And those are great, but who gets to do this type of stuff? If you ever read the books by entrepreneurs that are very successful, they often talk about how you need to take a, a trip away to a cabin to work on a book or to work on your next big idea or how to revolutionize a particular product. And they come away after three or four weeks with all these brilliant changes. And I know Bill Gates does this sort of thing. I does know, he? Yeah, I know a lot of uh, Christian leaders have often done this sort of thing. Guys from California and Silicon Valley like to do that kind of practice. And how often do everyday people get to do that kind of thing in their career? So will there be an explosion of cool ideas Could be. across the world over the next six months to a year because people have had time to think? Or is Netflix just making a killing? Uh, both. Okay. <laughs> I trust that at some point while you're waiting for uh, Netflix to buffer, you're going to hop into a long shower and you're going to get all kinds of good ideas. You know, that's where I do all my thinking actually is in the shower. Do you see, I, I can't really accomplish anything, oh, man. I, I get up in the morning. I take a long, really blistery hot shower. Mm. And when I'm done, I'm like, Oh, quick, I got to dry off. I got some ideas. I got to write down. That, that actually happens a lot. You know that you can actually get notepads that will stick in on the tile in the bathroom shower and that are waterproof with waterproof paper and pen. So you can write down your ideas in the shower. I'm going to have to put one of these in the show notes for you. When's, <laughs> when's your birthday? Yeah. I know guys that use this sort of thing. I never even considered that. Usually I'm just running across one. Well, I'm dressed (laughs) (laughs) running across the house, trying to get to my computer and open it up so I can start typing some things in it. That 
Another idea I know that guys do is like if you do have one of the newer phones, if it's just waterproof, they'll just put it on a shelf in the shower and pick it up to do a little voice memo to remember something in the shower. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Productivity. The only downside to that is that if you get the water on your hands plus the screen of your phone, you may have difficulty recording the voice memo because you got to dry it off. Unless you use the voice assistant to tell it, hey, record this voice memo. Hmm. Mm, so the, it's a little trickier. So I know some guys who prefer the pen and paper in the shower. <laughs> yeah. now, as a marine biologist, we, we always had waterproof paper on hand and things that we could go underwater and write notes underwater. So that, no different, really. Well, right? it, but it takes a very special pen. You can't use a Sharpie. So it's not like a tablet inside of a waterproof housed case. It's like they a, might be doing that now. Yeah. Back in the day, it was no, it was underwater paper and a pencil. That, wow, a pencil? Yeah, pencils. Yeah, not even. Oh, that is so cool. It's waterproof paper, and we, here we're working so hard to get our earbuds to be water resistant and our phones to last for twenty minutes under two meters of water. <laughs> Scuba diver could be riding underwater. I cannot tell you how many pages of notes I filled up underwater. On a clipboard. Where are those notes today? Oh, I don't know. Some, some box at the University of Miami somewhere that maybe got thrown away. But no. <sighs> I expected one time I spent three summers in a row, three, three days a week, driving yeah. from Miami down to Key Largo to go scuba diving all day. Basically, I spent three hours a day upside down, my head down and my feet up. And we'd run a, a long uh, tape measure out, out across the reef. And we had these PVC squares that were a half a meter in on each side and we go down we drop one of them at random places along this tape and then we stare at this half meter square and write down every coral we found and how big it was Mm. and so we're looking for baby corals and i recorded tens of thousands of them on pieces of paper well i guess so they're probably all dead i mean they they never live very long but it's just a study of you know how fast do they recruit to the reef wow we're gonna have to talk about Coral reefs. Coral reefs. All right. Hey, yeah, last time we talked about bees in the beginning. Yeah let's, yeah, let's do a coral reef episode. That'd be awesome. You're working on a special project then from home, not your usual work. I know you don't want to divulge anything, but... I how- can divulge it, yeah. Okay, cool. What do you want to say about your new project? Well, it's a project I've been working on for a long time, but I've been having trouble finding a way to carve out enough time to actually get it done. And that is my book project. I'm not going to tell you the title right now because that, sure. that could change. But my co-author and I were trying to explain genetics from a biblical perspective and history and geography and how to put all those things together to make a cohesive story of humanity, starting with Adam and Eve, starting with Noah and his family, describing people spreading out across the world, the mixing, the wars, the exterminations, the people who are left over, you know, who's genetically related to whom. And man, some of those stories are like, what? That's not supposed to be true. And are trying to explain how our concept of race is completely backwards compared to ancient history and what ancient people would have thought compared to what we think. They would have like, you think that guy's a different race? What are you, what are you talking about? Those sorts of things. A lot of things that people take for granted. A lot of stuff that has been fed, uh, fed to us from academia it, it is just generalizations or things that we only roughly understand and remember well a lot of it also is people trying to make guesses about history but all they had was a pot oh this pot changed you know in this city you look at this layer has these pots and this layer has those pots well why did the pots change did they 
a new people group come through, kill off everybody and take over the city and they had different style? Or did the people adopt the style from some other culture that they liked? Oh, yeah. Are they copycats or were they killed? Oh. We did, can now yeah. answer that question for the first time ever. So is this going to be a multi-volume series uh, uh, no. or maybe just a... Well, it's going to be a lot of spinoff yeah. products. I'm going to do a lot of biblical genetics episodes on it. I'll nice. probably take, you know, one people group in the world, one episode, explain where they came from. The next episode, I'll do another people group. Does your co-author have other books to his name? Oh, yes. Nice. Oh, yes. He has very important books and he's, very, he's very rather, rather famous. So I can't wait for you to be able to, to talk about this. <laughs> this is going to be really neat. Interesting times to see you working on this. Do you, do you have an idea of when it might be wrapping up this year, next year? As soon as we can get it done. Okay. I mean, we're burning a lot of fuel. Yeah. And we're working really hard on it. We, we got stalled with one particular issue and it's a very sticky issue and a very culturally sensitive issue. And it was six months before we figured out how to handle it, where we thought the world wouldn't flash back on our face. Because when you start talking about DNA and people, you it's gotta, a pretty sensitive topic. It's a very sensitive topic. And the way the Darwinists specifically have handled this over the last 150 years has basically been horrible. As with so many topics that are just really sensitive to people, it has a lot to do with your foundation, what you already know and what you think is true. And Darwinism and the public knowledge ha- is such a huge foundation. And what you're saying contradicts it so very much that it's like you would sound radical. You would sound like you were contradicting basic truths we know about an evolutionary world. If I was writing this in 1950, people would think I'm a radical because I would be completely contradicting everything from Darwinian philosophy, that whole school for a hundred years before that. Because I mean, they were abject racists and the things they wrote are disgusting and not politically correct. And it should make you angry if you read most of their writings from that first century. It's very difficult to, yeah. But today we have political correctness. Right. And so now we have a different thing that we have to step across. We don't want to see the goal of communicating is to not brown people off before they hear what you're trying to say. So you have to learn how to communicate in a way that doesn't get all the red flags to pop up as soon as you open your mouth. Mm Mm-hmm. It is difficult because I don't want to change the the subject matter and I don't want to, no, you know, no, defu- no. I don't want to lie and I don't want to be deceitful, but I also want to, you know, if we're talking about the history of Judaism or the status of, of African-Americans or Chinese people more closely related to Neanderthals than Europeans. Right. Whoa, hold on a minute. You got to really, really, really watch what you say. Oh, Interesting. So what we're talking about today is, is going to be in your wheelhouse, but it's not your book subject. You want to go ahead and begin the topic? Yeah, let, let's do um, all the people of the world. All the people of the world. Modern people of the world. All where, right, do we have enough time for that? No, no, not at all. We, we might not even get the first people group that we choose. I'll let you choose the people group. Oh, okay. Like pick a continent, pick a language, pick a culture, whatever it is, and... We'll see if what we know about it. And if you pick one, I don't know. I just say, I don't know anything about that. Let's go to the next one. Eskimos. Okay. Yeah, really? Yeah, absolutely. You're, gonna, you're willing and ready to run with this? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, just to back up one other little note concerning what we're getting into. If you're newer to the show, then you might want to back up and listen to the episode about ancient DNA as a good prologue. We're not talking about ancient DNA today, but it certainly leads up right to where we're going to continue today. Oh, ancient DNA is going to come into it. This is the background behind what we are now able to say about modern people. Yeah, this is the cross. What do they call it? This is um, crossroads of 
science and history, archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Fantastic and geography stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All my favorite subjects all rolled into one. All right. So Eskimos. Okay. Eskimos. Inuit. Political correctness. Got to use the right terms. But actually, I was talking to a, a, a man in England a couple years ago, and he was a Roma. That is a gypsy. But the gyp- gypsy is a word that people don't like to use anymore. So you're supposed to call them Roma. And I'm asking this guy, he's like, what am I supposed to call you? And he laughs and he puts his hand on his big belly and he laughs and laughs and laughs. And he goes, gypsy. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but if I use that word, other people will get mad. He goes, ah, forget them. You, you ever hear that word? I've been gypped. Oh, dear. Is that all? Oh. That's exactly where it comes from. See, now you're ruining the English language for me, Rob. Yep. But I, I'm going to still use it because I'm going to forget what that meant next week. Okay, okay. But you've, no one ever says I've been Eskimoed, so it's okay. <laughs> we still have Eskimo pies. Okay. <laughs> but matters of political correctness aside, there is a group of people that lives in the far north. They seem to have replaced the first peoples that lived in the far north. Paleo-Eskimos are not the modern Eskimos. There is a, a group of people that came across from Siberia a very long time ago. And we have their bones because Siberia is a great place. Or um, you know, Siberia, the Canadian Arctic, uh, northern Alaska. These are great places to preserve bones because it's cold. Preserve DNA. And so we get DNA from these things. And we realize that the people living there now are genetically distinct from the first people who came through. So maybe a thousand years ago, maybe 1500 years ago, it's hard to actually know but a new wave of people came across from Siberia and they're now living in the places where some different people used to be living. So was there a war? Or did it just uh, uh, sort of like a catastrophic pandemic event? Yeah, maybe they died something. out. I mean, we know in the, the um, 1917, 1918 flu that people were going to remote Inuit villages. And when they got there, everybody was dead mm. from the flu. Mm. But no one knows how they got there because they're remote. Somehow it got there and it wiped out a lot of people. So yeah, it, an epidemic could have wiped out a lot of people, war. It doesn't look like a lot of other examples we have in, in ancient history. When two people groups meet, one of the people groups wins, but they don't kill off all the people that live there first. They marry them. And what usually what happens is the men get killed off and the girls don't get killed off. And then the invading army is men and they marry the girls and then you get a mixed result. Mm. But it does not look like what's happened in the far north. Mm. And so they, uh, they carried over with them uh, some mitochondrial uh, lineages. One of them is mitochondrial group X. It's found in other places also, but X is, is a, a marker for the Inuit that's very common up there. And that looks like it came from Siberians. Hmm. Something related to how all the races, is, uh, races, is? All the races got uh, diversified and the people groups uh, maybe intermarried and then you see their genes together when you didn't think that they would be together, like we've talked about with the family DNA, and then forked off again and the like. As we established uh, discussing DNA between a couple of episodes, there, there's essentially like one bloodline that is broken off into various smaller sets, right? Yes. That, and that got spread out. So it's, it's not like there's a whole lot different between the, the Neanderthals and humans today. In fact, we have some of their genes in our DNA today. Yes, we do. So then what happens is the various races are actually just subsets of a larger pool of genes for earlier humans that spread around the world. Yes. And then if you add several thousand years of mutations to that, each little group has picked up things that other groups don't have. 
Oh, right. Like, you know, the red hair in Scotland and Ireland or a particular mutation on a Y chromosome that, you know, only people in, I don't know, Japan have. Right. Or something like that. Basically anywhere. Yeah. Everywhere in the world, there are unique variants only found in those locations. So how far back can we go and say we think that the original people group came from a specific territory on the planet? Um, I know a lot of science fiction has dabbled with this idea that we can see the um, earliest you know, version of human beings and their ancestors came out of the jungles of Africa or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But we can't get DNA from those things. But the DNA that we can get looks very Babel-like. Babel? You mean uh, like Babylonia? Yeah, like a massive dispersion of people from the Middle East across most of the continental regions. So the Middle East then would have been the Middle East today. Are we yeah. talking about the Eastern Middle East or more of the West well, side? Of no, the, the Western East? side. Iran, mm-hmm. Iraq, Israel, Jordan. It's Syria. so hard to believe that people could have come out of there. And you know, like we, I think we've touched on before, to knowing a thing or two about geography, climates change. So it could have been a very rich forested green lush area thousands of years ago more what is the word for not habitat eco-friendly but more more hospitable than it is today there's actually some evidence for that the earliest evidence of civilization that we have is a place called gobekli tepe it's in southernmost turkey right on the turkey syrian border in fact it is overlooking a very important biblical city named haran Haran. So I would have I, I just Where Jacob. My, yeah, my, and, my mind Isaac's would have gone to pr- pronounce it Haran, but Haran. Whatever. I don't. You know. Yeah. Okay. Ancient languages. Who Ancient, knows them? Yeah. Who knows? But Haran is what I say, and it is in line of sight to the oldest temple complex ever discovered. Yeah. And it's a a um, Stonehenge like structure, and on but on the on the uprights instead of just being flat, there are animals carved on them. Animals like crocodiles and wading birds and things that don't live in the area today. So, so it, evidence that they used to be. A, a, evidence that that was a wetter place when that thing was constructed than it is today. It is so hard to picture those places different from how they are today, but it makes sense knowing what we know about, you know, climates. Yeah. And then you look at the Sahara Desert. There's there's a couple places where there's crocodiles hundred miles, hundreds of miles away from the local rivers. And they're marooned in some watering hole. Well, how'd they get there? Well, they used to be connected to that river. And there's all these, you know, cave paintings in the northern Sahara with with people fishing. And the bottoms of the caves are littered with fish bones. And, but wait a minute, it's a desert. Well, yeah. it used to be well watered. So yeah, the climate has changed a lot. Hmm. So then when people came out of the Middle East, did they go north, south, east, and west all roughly at the same time? Or did oh, that... Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, no. That's, that's the cool thing that we're now able to see in the DNA. When we look at occupation layers in archaeology, I mean, clearly the lowest stuff had to be laid down before the upper stuff. Yeah. And so you go to a city and intensity, it burns down every couple hundred years and they rebuild it. And they rebuild it on the remains of the last city. And so you get all these layers. And when you dig down into those layers, you sometimes find people bones. Mm. And then you say, oh, these people came before those people. And you can look at a progression of DNA. And the first people who spread out, we call them hunter-gatherers. Think of a Native American. Think of, you know, the actually a bad picture of a Native American is, is a person who doesn't farm. But we know lots of Native Americans farmed. I um, mean, they, they invented corn. I mean, they, they grew lots of vegetables. We know they farmed a lot. But, you know, the, our, 
our characteristic picture is the Plains Indians migrating across the plains, hunting buffalo. And um, yeah, that's so post-Columbus. It's, it's really a bad view. But they were hunter-gatherers at that point. Uh, imagine some guy living in a cabin in, in the woods. He's not a farmer, but he goes out and he fishes and he collects berries and he you know, might, maybe gets a couple of bears every year. And he's not a farmer. Yeah, he's a hunter-gatherer. Makes he's a hunter. Yeah. yeah, he's living in a in a in a a log cabin in the woods, you know, that's, that's the technology level we're talking about. The first people that spread across the world didn't have farms, didn't domesticate animals, didn't domesticate crops. It took us a long time to figure that out. So rice was first domesticated in China in the Yangtze, um, Yellow River valleys. So rice is a grass, corn is a grass, wheat is a grass. Wheat looks like it was first domesticated in the mountains north of Iraq which is really close to where the ark landed. Vetch also comes from there and lots of other things. A lot of our salad greens, genetically, they trace back to the mountains north of Iraq. It's really weird. Whoa, that is so cool. <laughs> Bizarre. It's so cool that we have evidence for that. Oh, wow. Just, mm. so horses were first domesticated in the grasslands north of the Black and Caspian Seas, the, the steppes that go from Mongolia all the way to Hungary. But the first horses, they didn't have very good front legs. Their front legs weren't strong enough to ride, but through careful breeding experiments, someone bred a horse, had strong enough front legs that it could carry a man or pull a wagon. I just took for granted that horses in the in the past would have been stronger, bigger, buffer animals. And as their genes broke down, okay. Well, they could have been bigger or whatever, but someone changed them just enough to make them domestic. And also sturdy legs. And extremely useful. And so something really interesting happens in the, the um, archaeology of Central Asia is that the archaeology disappears. What? Okay. Because once they figured out how to hook up a wagon to a horse, the entire culture became mobile. Oh. And they stopped building stone walls and things like that. And they just started wandering. You know, that makes me a little concerned about archaeology for the future, that today we do everything digitally. We're not going to have evidence and traces of all the things that we did that were digital. Well, the people are talking about the digital dark ages. That is all the stuff that was digitally saved in the seventies and eighties is decaying. Yeah. And it's going to keep creeping up as the decades go by. That's right. We have a big problem with data preservation because I mean, I can't, I mean, I've got some stuff on uh, cassette tape. I should probably threw them all away by now. Oh yeah. Or all those, you know, those burnable DVDs that we all burned 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all falling apart. Even something like our books are just on printed paper that it just can't last for terribly long. Yeah, but it lasts longer than a floppy. It does. It does. I mean, all those, there are those five and a quarter really inch old, things that we saved, yeah. your centipede games and whatever, maybe a book we're working on, they're not usable anymore. Right. My grandfather's comic books. Yeah. So data storage is important and difficult, but it, we also But see, it was better in the past for the kinds of things that a lot of cultures kept. Yeah, lots. Yeah. Out of clay. Just tools and a sundry, home odds and ends. Yeah. Maybe they were the sturdier. occasional child's toy that was a sturdier, organic yeah. product. And we find them in the ground. Now, today, everyone knows, the archaeologists in the future are going to know the 20th century. We started calling it the Anthropocene, that is, the period of man, because of plastics. Oh, that's what we're going to be known for. Trash. No. And Uh. yeah, and there's going to be a big change. If you look at a layer, oh, there's plastics here. Okay, that's 
20th century or later. Wow. Uh, 21st century, they figured out the plastic problems. So this going to be about a hundred year window where anything that was oh, generated wow. during that time frame is going to be full of plastics. Wow. But back in the day, it was horse bones. <laughs> so for the previous century, it was horse bones. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, in archaeology, there's really good evidence, even though some of the skeptics will say no, but there's really good evidence that a people invaded Israel from the east. And when they came in, they got stuck in the highlands, just like the Bible says. And they built some strange houses that weren't there before. The four-room house, which you also see in Egypt. And earlier than that, we see it in Syria. So it looks like these Israelites kept their building style. And there are no pig bones associated with any of those dwellings. Oh, wow. They're sheep and goat, cow, but no mm. pig. Very kosher. So, yeah, very kosher. So, archaeologically, this is probably the signal for the Israelites invading Canaan, you know, 1500 BC or so. That is so cool. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm genuinely excited to hear this. The, the, there, there's this archaeological trail that you can use. Oh, that's and it makes total sense. Yeah, but they never wrote on a pot shard, this is Israel. No, yeah, made in Israel. Yeah, no, doesn't say that at all. So copyright 2000 BC. Yes, they never did that, sadly. So <laughs> this gives people time to argue and room to, to make arguments that we'll figure out 10, 20 years from now if they're any good. Same thing is true in like Native American DNA and archaeology and Chinese and Japanese and Africa and Iceland and Australia and Central Europe. There's remains and the remains never come with a date or a direct statement of, you know, uh, this is Joe Darnell. I'm writing this and this is the year blank, blank, blank. And I'm going to put it in the ground so you can find it in a thousand years. What we find is people's trash. Yeah, you could go through my trash and figure out from this or that that I was born in the 80s that I always lived in Georgia up to the present. That sort of thing. If you found enough trash. Mm -hmm. But if you only found a little bit of trash, you'd be like, oh, yeah, he's just, you know, use AT&T as a cell phone service. You probably get digital bills now. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of years ago, you're probably getting paper bills. I don't know if you have AT. By the way, readers, I made that up. Listeners, <laughs> I'm not trying to get anyone to spy on Joe here, but. Yeah, no, 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 no. But <clears> someone <throat> could build a, a paper trail, an archaeology trail from your trash. And that's most of what we have in history is people's garbage. And they're dead people. Like you said, they're bones. They're bones. But only they're for ashes, the people that they- are burned cities. Well, there's some cultures that routinely immolated their dead people. So we don't have any bones. They turn oh. them to ash. Yeah. There are some cultures that would expose their dead people to vultures. Ooh. And within a couple hours, the skeleton, you have nothing but a skeleton left. The bones are completely picked clean. Well, that's sanitary. It is. You got rid of the the dead body problem, which is a massive problem. Yeah, I, I wasn't being sarcastic. I actually know the vultures are more sanitary um, than like bald eagles. Vultures that usually pick the, yeah, the flesh okay. off the bone. Because the way that they don't get riddled with a disease that kill themselves is they get an ultraviolet sun bath. They go out into the sunlight. They turn this way and that so that the ultraviolet light can kill the microbes on them. Whereas eagles typically avoid sunlight. They go to the shade and their nests, they hide in the treetops under uh, hedges of leaves. And vultures go out to get into the sun. That's to, disgusting. To kill the germs. You just taught me them. something about science. I had never, I never heard this before. <laughs> yeah. This is really cool. Yeah, vultures are very clean. Well, okay then, but don't go kissing one. <laughs> They're hideous. I would never do that. So for the cultures that buried their dead, 
in places that were cool enough to preserve DNA and with soils that weren't saturated with oxygenated water, we have bones left. And we figured out how to pull DNA out of those bones. And as we started doing that, all the stories of early man changed. All the stories of early man and uh, basically the last few thousand years too, right? Yeah, well, especially over the last couple hundred years when you know anthropologists are trying to explain where people came from. They're using those awful terms, Caucasian, Mongoloid, and Negroid. Uh, yeah. Which are essentially racist terminology. True. Developed by racist evolutionists who are trying to say things about people that we now today are not true. Not only not true, but are they really relevant anyway? They're, they're completely unuseful. Mm. Totally not useful to say Mongoloid. So you might call someone from China Mongoloid. Okay, but what do you call someone from Kazakhstan? Who's halfway between China and Europe and genetically is halfway between the Chinese and the Europeans. They're neither. So if you look at the extremes of humanity, you can make these you know racist categories. But in between those categories exists everything else. So those terms are completely unhelpful. They don't actually describe anybody. And it's even better when we get into ancient DNA. But it's not like we're saying that nationalities disappear and patriotism disappears and the culture that we've created. It's just that it's not written in the blood. It, it's unlike what people expect. Mm -hmm. So when we look at um, early Europeans, first Europeans are Neanderthals. In fact, the earliest Neanderthals are um, probably, sorry, the earliest Europeans are um, Homo hydrobergensis, who don't even look like Neanderthals. They look like modern man. The Neanderthals are the dead end. The last Neanderthals are the ones who look like the classic Neanderthals. Yeah, you said there was a lot of interbreeding. Inter but even, even besides that, the earliest ones look kind of like modern people, and then they morphed into this Neanderthal-like thing right before they disappeared. As they're inbreeding so much, yeah. they get replaced by hunter-gatherers that are more European than Neanderthals are, but they're still not European. Because, like you were saying, the people that we, the Europeans we have today are not the Europeans of the past. That's right. But the next group of people are farmers that come up from Turkey, Anatolia, and they replace the hunter-gatherers. They live next to each other for a while, but they eventually get replaced. And the next population is like... I don't know the percent, but it's like 90% Anatolian and 10% hunter-gatherer. What is the Anatolian? Anatolia is modern Turkey. Okay. So that uh, the archaeologists and the geneticists talk about Anatolia a lot. See, I know a lot more about the Western, though, than I do know about the Eastern. Tell me some more about the, the uh, what would you call them? Not not the Mongoliades the Mongoliades or whatever you called them a moment ago. The Mongoloids, yeah. Mongoloids. Yeah, but what, what should we call them? East Asians. East Asians. Yeah. Tell me about the East Asians, where they came from, what their history is like. Well, there's someone found a skeleton in a cave just not too far from Beijing. And it's a very old skeleton. And very strangely, it's genetically very similar to the Han Chinese that live in the area today. Hmm. When we look at the family tree, the, the genetic tree of the Y chromosomes or the mitochondria, it's very wide and has lots of branches. That's a signal for a... a culture that has just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown over time. And it's a very big country, so I can see that makes total sense. If you've got a, a um, group of people that went through a population crash, a lot of the branches in the family tree get pruned. Does it make sense to say it that way? If you get a lot of people dying, you, your family tree gets pruned. And so the tree doesn't look nice and bushy. It looks really straggly. 
Yeah, maybe you have an epidemic in an area. So that one line going into the southeastern area just tails off. Yeah, so the lucky ones survive, which means your tree isn't all filled out. A lot of the branches got trimmed. Yeah, but in the case of the Chinese, you're saying that it's a beautiful, full. It's like, I mean, it's it's like a bush. So it really does look like they arrived there a long time ago and had been in place for a long time. They probably came from the south. It, it looks like from the genetics that people spread eastward through the Middle East, then down through Pakistan and India, around the bottom of all the mountains, and then came up into China. So they were following the coastline a little bit? A little bit, and, and the food. And then someone in China invented rice. Invented rice? How do you invent well, rice? Rice cultivation is tricky because you have yeah. to plant it underwater. It's true. And then you have to drain it and dry it. I never had to think about how rice was invented before. So this is very peculiar. And and the early rices didn't have a lot of food. I mean, you've ever eaten grass? (laughs) You can't eat the green part of the grass. It's too much silica. It it, it tears your stomach up. But if you want to get the grass seed, there's not really much there. No. But someone probably found a plump grass seed. Ooh, and they thought, let's not eat it. Let's plant it. Oh, nice. And over several generations of doing that, they bred this grass that has this big fat plump thing we call a grain of rice and once you were able to do that and control the water in some marshy area with some muddy dikes or something like that i remember i took a trip to bali in indonesia and as intensive rice cultivation there yeah yeah and it's really amazing how they have all these clay dikes these waterways just made of piled up clay and they have these wooden gates in between them and somehow all the farmers know who's using the water because they have to share the water from upstream to downstream. And they've got it all worked out. I have no idea how they know it. But, you know, a farmer will come and he'll open up a sluice gate and all the water goes into his field and fills it up. And he closes the sluice gate and I guess the next guy will get the next bed of water. And so that you have to have coordination. And what that does is it builds society. So you have society that's communicating And producing a lot of food, a lot more food than an individual needs, which means you can have more babies. And the Chinese population grew really big and then they spread out. And so if you go to Taiwan today, on the low-lying areas of Taiwan, just about everyone is of Chinese extraction. But if you go up into the mountains of Taiwan, the people up there aren't related to the Chinese. The same thing's true in Indonesia on the big islands with mountains, that mountain people tend to be the first people who got there. And that, settled and stayed. Didn't and then Chinese much. came later. Yeah. And you might call them Indonesians, but you know they're of Chinese extraction. And so if you go to Formosa, go to Taiwan, up in the mountains, there's a, a language family. It is a very different language family from Chinese. And there's 10 major branches of this family of languages. One of those languages is also spoken all the way to Easter Island, all the way north to Hawaii, all the way south to New Zealand. So linguistically, we know where the Polynesians came from. They came from Taiwan. In fact, we know what people group in Taiwan they came from because there's only that this major language of the 10 families in this language, only one of them left and spread out across the entire Pacific Ocean. And now genetically, we've been able to demonstrate that. Something that you have said that's still a novel concept, I think, to a lot of the audience is about mutations, how mutations are usually introducing little tiny examples of like handicapped genes. Yeah. It doesn't really produce very many uh, good 
benefits. That's, that's right. And that's something that Darwin completely got wrong. Right. And, and it is still difficult for, I think, our, our world to grasp because of the influence of things like science fiction because yes. x-men yes i i'm a mutant now. i have blue skin what yeah. T- yeah tons of science fiction superheroes uh, uh stories involve mutations being hugely beneficial yeah. just add a little bit of electricity in a secret lab or a vat of chem- chemicals and you can cause mutations and you've got peter parker's spider powers yeah, I was about to say get bit by a radioactive spider yeah yeah um so, so no that's yeah that's just doesn't doesn't usually align with the the facts, but you do get things like red hair, like you were yeah. saying earlier, blue eyes. hereditary blindness, mm. yeah, all those fun things. Yes, um, but most of what the geneticists are concerned with, at least my branch of genetics, I'm not looking at diseases. I'm looking at human history, so I'm looking for markers. I'm looking at letters that you know a mutation that really didn't hurt the person at all but it's now stuck in his genome or in his Y chromosome or his mitochondria. So all of his children are also going to carry that. So if this man is born and he's got a mutation no one else has ever had before, he starts a new branch in the family tree. Like the red hair. Could like be the red a hair. simple mutation, doesn't really hurt anything. That's right. Hmm. And so we have on the mitochondria, we have all these markers in the mitochondria that have appeared in human history over time and that allows us to untangle history of humanity. So is black hair actually a mutation of sorts as well? Because I'm just assuming that ancient man had like a really dark brown. So anything extreme would have been more of a mutation? It is possible, but hair color is notoriously difficult to figure out because there's so many different genes that influence it. Oh, okay. It is possible that someone with black hair, black hair is a little complicated because that person is simply producing a lot of melanin and putting it into their hair. Well, some people put melanin into the hair and not their skin. Some people put the melanin in their hair and their skin. Some people have dark skin and light hair. Not usually, but it can happen. But there's plenty of people who have, you know, I remember watching the movie Dunkirk and I was having the hardest time keeping the characters separate. And about three quarters of the way through the movie, I realized, oh, everyone has black hair. Every single character had dark oh, hair. It's like, yeah. we're all the blonde haired English people. Oh, because there's tons of English people who have dark hair. I just like the Beatles. You yeah. know, I, I just never thought about it until I was watching that movie and I realized, oh, wait a second. <laughs> Hair color is tricky, really tricky, but we do know some of the major drivers of hair color and we can look at across the world who's carrying what and we can make guesses about what people look like. Hmm. Okay. So then let's talk about another people group then. Uh, One of those I think is always a little bit harder to remember or I haven't heard a lot about were South Americans. I know a lot going down into Mexico, but not a whole lot lower than that. So what can you tell me about that very large continent that a lot of people overlook? Back in the year 2005, I think it was, someone did a study using computer modeling, and they concluded about 70 people made it across the Bering Strait, and they're the ancestors of all the Native Americans. Whoa, okay, that's a very pretty specific number. Yeah, it was a very small number. So if you're looking at Mexicans versus Peruvians versus Bolivians, you know what? You're not going to find many differences. Oh, okay. There are some differences, but hardly any. All the Native Americans, North and South America, are highly similar to one another, which is why, you know, when Europeans came over, there's massive epidemics that swept across and killed off a huge number of Native Americans because once a bug figured out how to kill one of them, it could kill off 75% of them. Wow. And what we've seen (sighs) in, like, the mitochondrial lineages... 
it looks like there are a whole bunch of different groups of people that grabbed the territory and stayed there for a long time and then went extinct because we don't find their mitochondria in the modern Native Americans. So there's lots of extinction of a lot of lineages, but even though they're different from one another, they might only be different one or two letters. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's more difference in the letters found in Europe than are found in North America or South America, Mm, but there are definitely differences and we can look at them. So what, what would be the future of the races from where we are today? Something that, that we already have gone through is a lot of this history how everything winds up with certain sets of DNA and mutations. But where do we go from here? What is it going to look like in 200 years? Well, people have decided races don't exist, so everyone's going to blend together. So we're going to actually be uh, like, you like you know, for practical understanding, it's going to be more of like a mutt between yeah. the various breeds, yeah, the various races. In fact, um, I don't want to insult anybody. Yeah, we we are yeah, not, nothing special being white Caucasians. Or no, whatever. no, not at all, no, not no, at no. all. But but if you want to look at some of the most mixed people in the world, you probably go to Puerto Rico. There's one people group that is a mixture of Europeans, Africans, and Native Americans, and that's Puerto Ricans, because it's one of the big islands in the Caribbean where the Spanish didn't kill off all the natives, and then they imported a bunch of slaves. That's the ice cream. Ice truck. cream! <laughs> I'll leave it in there. <laughs> the perils of recording at home, but not in a, a real studio <laughs> with yeah. sound insulating tiles. It's like ice cream man drives by. <laughs> I'm more afraid of the lawnmowers. I didn't expect this. I wonder if it's the same guy who, who uh, the ice cream man bombed me when I was at, at the park a couple of weeks ago filming one of my biblical genetics episodes. And I'm just standing there. And all these people start running in the background behind me towards Ice Cream Man. And I'm trying to signal in him. I'm making the, you know, cut across the throat thing. You know, kill the sound, kill the sound. And he just totally ignored me. <laughs> so I literally <laughs> waited about 15 minutes before he finally drove away. Oh, wow. Even though Charles Darwin, his friends, and their intellectual descendants wrote a lot of things about races, modern geneticists have decided there's no such thing. They were completely wrong. There's no difference in our intelligence. I don't care what you think. You're wrong. You put two people in the same environment and you're not going to find a difference between the races in the same environment. There's lots of cultural differences and cultural uh, pressures and under and um, languages. Arts are totally different sometimes. Style. Uh, culinary arts, very different. Yeah, but that doesn't make someone intelligent or not. No, not at all. But you take someone out of poverty. You get rid of all those stresses and all the diseases and you give them enough food and you encourage them to get educated and they'll be just as smart as anybody else. Yeah, because there's ultimately not a superior race. There is not a superior race. In fact, we can't even find anything to define races. This is the weirdest thing. I've had multiple papers I've read recently all said the same thing. You cannot find anything where 100% of Africans have a letter and no one else in the world has it. You can't find anything where 100% of Europeans have something and no one else in the world has it. You might find 50% of Europeans have lost the ability to control lactose digestion, and so now they can drink milk as an adult. But it's not 100%. It's not like 100% of Europeans have blue eyes or blonde hair or are tall or anything. There's There's nothing anywhere that anyone's ever found. And now that we've sequenced full genomes from all these people around the world, we're not going to find it. There's nothing that 100% distinguishes one people group from another. Okay, so then maybe back in the realm of science fiction, then for some folks, they want to create this superior race. 
Yes. And it is that even possible? No, because the superior person is probably going to be someone of mixed race ancestry. If you are a so-called race, that means you're inbred. So it's almost like the Puerto Ricans have the advantage over the rest of us that are more subsets. Because they're a mixture of, of the three major world populations. Yeah, it's really cool. It is, yeah. If Very you want to cool. be if you want to breed true to type that you only have blonde hair, blue-eyed children, that means you're missing an awful lot of DNA. That means you've got things you're focusing on here are recessive traits. The only way to do this is if both of your parents have the same ancestry. You're you're missing the rest of the genetics of the rest of the world. But we don't want to necessarily dwell on just maybe the superficial things like your hair color or the shape of your eyes. Those are traditional ones because they're easy to see. They're easy to see. Yeah. But it's also affecting other genes that may actually affect your bodily functions and maybe your lifespan. Your lifespan, your ability with this, uh, your lifespan, your ability to withstand diseases, all sorts of things. This is so countercultural for a lot. Like if you even watch a lot of historical drama, it's not just science fiction. But if you just watch a lot of historical drama where racism plays a big role, you see a lot of this conflicting with cultural assumptions. But ancient people would look at our definition of races and have, would have no idea what we're talking about. The early farmers in Europe were as different from the hunter-gatherers in Europe as modern Europeans are different from Japanese people. Mm. Literally, there, there is culture sitting right on top of each other that had as much genetic differences as we call races today. And yet those early cultures merged to become modern people groups. Mm. And so the racial lines in the past are at right angles to the racial lines today. So could you understand a group of people becoming purists about the human genes and talking about how what we need is to merge the lines again? Would there be a people that aren't interested in creating the super genetic advanced race, but at least like the ideal race and want more intermarriages because that would just be healthy for the human race as a whole's future? Honestly, I've not heard anyone talk that way. Because that thought is that does make lots of sense. And that's a smart way to do it. That has occurred to me when, you know, people talk about how we care about our planet. We care about the climate. We care about the endangered species of animals and their habitats and making sure that we have elephants for the next, you know, thousand years. What about the human race? How about the people thinking about the future of our genes as a whole? Yeah, but since there are seven billion of us and they, you know. It's not like we have a problem surviving. It's not. But the more specialized you become... The harder it is for that people group. Yeah. Especially if a pandemic could hurt that uh, group in particular. Yeah, it might have Like it did in South America. Like it did in South and and North America after the Europeans discovered the Americas. Yeah. Mm. It's just bizarre. This this whole thing, this whole study of ancient history and geography and genetics and culture is challenging all these things. I mean, essentially, you pick up a textbook for 50 years ago – it's worth as much as a doorstop. <laughs> yeah. Entire libraries of information and lifetimes of scholarship can just be thrown away. It's all wrong. It was interesting because it was based on seemingly insightful theories, but not based on factual evidence. It was based on ideas. And some of those ideas are directly derived from Darwinism. In fact, if you read what Darwin wrote about races, it's awful but it's directly derived from 
favored races, the preservation of favored races. Some races are going to survive than others because they're better genetically than others. And if he's right, then there should be on the earth today some races that are better than others. And he's just completely wrong. Mm. Now, some people listening to this, they're still, they're not agreeing. Yeah, but this is good news. Yeah, but but it is good news. But there's a stopping point here. Oh, no, Asians are smarter. Oh, Africans aren't as smart. Africans are better at sports. That is nonsense. But to get that thought out of our heads takes more than just listening to us right now. Oh, yeah, because the stereotypes are it, proliferating through all of our entertainment. Yeah. Like every television show for teenagers and families, the modern family, the family guy, you know, there's tons of shows that are coming across multiple cultures where we just take for granted that these things, these stereotypes are kind of sort of true because we laugh and nod our heads as if to say, yeah, it's totally true about that kind of person. It's just make-believe. Total make-believe. Make-believe in the cartoon and the live action story in the superhero sci-fi element. But you know, it's funny because we can hold in our brains conflicting ideas at the same time. We do. You know, two different racial stereotypes at the same time that don't even agree with one another. And you have to recognize that when you put them together, wait a second, that makes no sense. I'm actually being bigoted because of some Darwinian presupposition. So let's get those out of our heads, listeners. Let's understand that this is a brave new world of data and everything that we thought about history is different wow very interesting stuff rob you know i i don't i don't think that this would have been a field of study that i would have originally just got sought out for myself but i'm really glad that i've learned a lot about it thanks to guys like you and i know uh the others that are working in the christian slash science arena around the world All right. So then thanks everybody for joining us on this week's quest. If you want to dig deeper into this stuff, I know it's really deep, but we make it as digestible as possible. And this is a great place to get it. But if you're interested in getting more about this week's episodes topics, you can find links to articles and the like in the show notes. Rob helps prepare those so that they're the best information, more useful information on our website where it's uh, where the series is kept. It is nightowl.fm slash equinox slash eight for episode eight. If you have a science topic in mind that you want us to discuss, tweet to at podcast equinox or find Dr. Robert Carter on Facebook or uh, find me on Twitter. We'll get your idea into the queue. You can find us on uh, Twitter as well. So Rob is at Bible Genetics and my handle on Twitter is at JCS Darnell. And if you're not already watching Rob's videos, you need to go check him out at Biblical Genetics on Facebook and YouTube. He's addressing a lot of the DNA and gene topics, and you can use those to go deeper about these topics. All right, until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And thank you for listening to Equinox. 